0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 14 through 18, continuing on this march through the Sermon on the Mount. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to park on verses 14 and 15, not because I don't have anything to say, or I couldn't say anything about fasting. Indeed, I could and would but we don't want to be here till 1 o'clock today. So that being the case, we could raise a question such as uh, for fasting. What do you truly hunger for? Do you truly hunger for the kingdom of God? You understand as you, even as you read the book of Acts, that one of the great advances for the gospel was when Paul was sent out on his uh, Mediterranean missions, from the uh, church of Antioch what were they doing when they sent out Paul and Barnabas they were praying and fasting and so a few other times in the book of Acts the gospel is going forth as the church gets on her face and prays and fasts before the God of heaven but there's so much to be said about this postscript to the Lord's prayer on forgiveness I want to park our attention here this morning. And I want to begin by telling you a true story, a story that many of you, if you're lifelong Floridians, might have heard before. The date was December 20th, 1974. Chris Carrier was a 10-year-old at the time, and was just beginning the first day of his Christmas holiday break. And between the bus stop and his home, a man approached Chris and told him that he looked just like his father, which put a great big smile on Chris's face. And so he told Chris that he was actually planning a party for Chris and could he might help. Chris eventually rode with the man to an unknown destination where I won't get into all the details, but an ice pick and a lit cigar were both involved. As Chris was being stabbed and burned and overwhelmed by the strength of this larger man, Chris, a church-going boy boy, cried out, Father, forgive him because he doesn't know what he's doing. Chris was told that he was going to be left to die in the Florida Everglades. And eventually the man forced Chris away from the vehicle, took a gun, and shot Chris in the head and left him to die under a few bushes. Chris Carrier lay unconscious for six days in the Florida Everglades. Regaining his consciousness only the day after Christmas when a hunter found him there in the wilderness. Unbelievably, Chris suffered no brain damage, though he did lose his left eye. As you may imagine the physical trauma was only just the beginning. Nightmares followed Chris for many, many years. Many nights as a young boy, he slept at the foot of his parents' bed out of sheer terror and fright that something similar would happen to him again. After such a brutal scene, which I've just sketched, just a thumbnail sketch for us this morning, can we even dare ask the question, if you were Chris Carrier, what would forgiveness look like for you? If you were Chris Carrier's parents, what would forgiveness mean to you? One of the great lines in our church-wide study, the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, that I really loved was he said this, he said the fall is manifested not only in our sinning but in our response to sinning as well. In other words we can choose bitterness and resentment and anger because we have been sinned against. Because the way that each one of us has been sinned against, we could respond with anger and bitterness and resentment. But Jesus offers us a better way. For many, though, this is a very difficult way. A few years ago, Gallup Poll did a poll, and this is what they do. 94% of people said it was important to forgive. But only 48% said that they made it a practice to forgive. And so do you get where this takes us? That forgiveness is often theoretically good idea universally speaking, but less than half, apparently, think that it's a good idea practically speaking. That's a gap of forty. percent 6% 6% of people in the United States who either, number one, don't know how to give forgive, or number two, are simply aren't willing to forgive. And so forgiveness is good in theory, we think, but often very difficult in practice. What happened to Chris Carrier? Kidnapped, blind in one eye fear, and terror experienced for years. A grown man had basically robbed Chris of his childhood because his uncle had fired this man from from his job for drinking on the job, and he wanted to exact revenge on the entire family. Well, well done. He did it. As the story plays out, 20 years pass. Chris after he was kidnapped, and he receives a call from the police officer who worked on the original investigation. David McAllister was dying in a nursing home and was one of the original suspects, though he, he never went to trial, and he finally, after all these years, had admitted to Chris's abduction. How would you respond? Chris Actually visited McAllister where he lived. Eventually held his hand and told David McAllister that he forgave him. But this was not the end. This, he just didn't say the words once and then walk away for other forever. Reconciliation actually ensued. Chris continued to visit McAllister and even took his young daughters to meet the man. At one point, he visited McAllister five times in six days. Chris shared the gospel with Mr. McAllister. McAllister eventually professed faith in Christ. And his story, this story became sort of national attention. CNN sent a reporter, and David McAllister told the CNN reporter that Chris Carey was the best friend that he'd ever had in his life. Another columnist eventually got wind of the story and he wrote this about Chris Carrier. He said, Chris tried against all logic to redeem one weak and dirty little scrap of man. Chris tried against all logic to redeem one weak and dirty little scrap of man. And I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like Me, like divine forgiveness, right? Because we could all say this about ourselves. Against all logic, God redeemed one weak and dirty little scrap of man named Jason Carter. Put your own name there. Forgive us our debts. The Lord instructed us to pray as we forgive our debtors. Chris Carrier dramatically forgave. And some of you might begin to cringe because you might begin to say, Pastor, you have no idea what I have gone through in my life. You have no idea what my parents or what my father or mother put me through or what my former spouse put me through or what my current spouse is doing to me now. You have no idea about all the details of my life. And that would be very true. Some of you might think, well, that's a great, big, dramatic story but really, that's not my story. And that's also true. And I would say to you that often forgiveness lives in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the, the very little details of all of our lives. The fall is manifested not only in our sinning, but in our response to sinning. That is, not only do I sin but the way in which I respond when someone sins against me is that my flesh rises up and I want to sin tit-for-tat against that person. And so, what does it mean to forgive? Who do you have in your own life that even today that you might need to forgive? You might have come and driven with this very person. You might be sitting very close proximity to this person. Something might have happened even last night where you say, I need to forgive or be forgiven. So let me give you, before we begin to saying what forgiveness is, first we should say what forgiveness is not. Let me give you four uh, ideas of what forgiveness is not because we want to compare these things that our culture sometimes assumes is true about forgiveness with what the Bible says. First, forgiveness is not a therapeutic feeling. Much of pop psychology in our world basically tells you that forgiveness is basically a private, individualized feeling that above all things is in your own best interest, right? And so modern psychology will say, you know, if you can just get your... Your, your emotional state, all revved up in the, the certain proper way and feel a certain feeling, then that's what forgiveness primarily entails. And so pop psychology will tell you that you basically forgive in order to restore your own inner peace and your own sense of tranquility. And they tease it out. They even say, you might need a very blasphemy, blasphemy as far as Christians are concerned, you might even need to forgive God. Because after all, forgiveness is just this internal state that whatever you do, you could even forgive yourself if that made any sense. No, get rid of the bitterness, but you never forgive yourself. As in this will be good for you. Now it's true that we shouldn't hold on to bitterness or resentment or anger, but not holding on to bitterness is not the same thing as the biblical concept of forgiveness. Biblical concept of forgiveness is more of an action, a decision, a posture, a way of life. And so forgiveness is not, first and foremost, a therapeutic feeling. Second, forgiveness is not treating an offense lightly or masking that the pain and the offense wasn't real. Forgiveness is not pretending that nothing was a big deal. I don't know if you've ever come to apologize and you say, you begin by saying, you know, I just want to say, uh, I just, would you forgive me? I'm really sorry. And the person cuts you off. They, oh, no, 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 no worry. Don't, don't worry about it. Not, not a big deal. That's not forgiveness. That's either overlooking an offense or it's minimizing the sin. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says this, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. And so in some scenarios, Proverbs says, overlooking an offense is great counsel. Especially if you are someone who is prone to to, castor, uh, to making big a small event, right? To making big a small scenario. If you're prone to catastrophizing the thing, you might need to learn... To overlook an offense. This is good. But sometimes forgiveness is necessary. And minimizing the the sin is not the way forward. Minimizing the sin can actually uh, get in the way of reconciliation. Get in the way of repentance from sin. And get in the way of true forgiveness. Say that I am consistently doing something that hurts The heart of my wife. Now, all you husbands, you just have to imagine such a scenario could occur. But for me, this, this could happen. But say that my wife, in her graciousness, decides to overlook the offense and perhaps minimize my sin. If she minimizes my sin, what can happen to her realistically? If she's not careful, a root of bitterness or resentment, or even anger can begin to take root in her heart. She overlooked the offense when she should have confronted me gently, in love, and with impeccable timing so I could hear her heart, right? And what happens to me if over time she continues to overlook the offense when she should practice what? Gentle, loving, and timely confrontation so that we might be made whole and reconciled. Well, she has basically taken from me the opportunity to ask for forgiveness, to search my heart, to repent and to change my ways that we may be brought closer together in the end. Conflict is the price that you pay for intimacy. So says Les and Leslie Parrott counselors. Conflict is the price that you pay for For intimacy. So great discernment is always needed. Is this an offense that I can overlook? If so, I should be able to shoulder the bitterness and the resentment and the anger in my own life and keep that at bay. Or do I gently, lovingly, and with great timing confront so that our relationship can grow stronger? But here's the thing, Forgiving, forgiveness is never pretending that the offense wasn't real. Third, what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not only a sign of sin. Of course it is that, but sometimes it's a sign of close relationships. Imagine that a person has really never forgiven in his or her life. What could you know about that person? What well, you might assume, probably correctly, that this person really doesn't have very many close relationships because this is what happens in close relationships Uh, forgiveness is offered and forgiveness is given or say that uh, I as a father never came before my children and said buddies dad simply blew it I am so sorry can you forgive me Or what if I never forgave them when they sinned against me and my wife? You could probably assume something like this. Well, Jason, I guess you must be a father that's not really interested in being involved and close into your boys' lives. Forgiveness is not only a sign that sin is present, but also that there is close relationships. This is what healthy relationships do, and this is how they live. Fourth, forgiveness is not unrelated to repentance. And the question here is, if someone never repents, can you forgive them? If someone never repents, can you forgive them? Some people think so because they say that forgiveness is unrelated. Conditional. That is, it does not depend on any type of repentance of the person who has wronged you. <clears throat> now, these are the same people who say that, you know, forgiveness is just an internalized therapeutic feeling. But we want to ask, because we're Christians, what does the Bible say? Uh, Ron read for us Ephesians 4.32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. There in the the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And so the question that naturally rises for you being a great biblical exegete that you are as a Christian because we want to know what the Bible says. You say, well, how does God forgive? And your mind straight away goes to what? First John 1, 9. And it begins with a pesky if statement, right? There's an if, then, conditional clause. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then you might go to Luke, chapter 17, verse 3 and 4. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If, 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 three ifs, three conditional clauses. And twice Jesus says, if he repents, then you forgive him. And so what do we understand? We understand that biblical forgiveness is predicated upon repentance. And so the question is, does God forgive all people unconditional forgiveness or does God forgive those who repent as the scripture says time and time again. Now of course this doesn't mean oh I, I, I didn't re- recall all my sins small or large and therefore, therefore God's not forgive me. That's not what that means. It says do you have a posture of forgiveness in your life because you've understood that God's great forgiveness in your life. And so Kevin DeYoung, author, he says this, the offer of forgiveness is unconditional for God, as it should be for us, but forgiveness itself is conditioned upon repentance. He says we must always be open and even in God's grace become eager to extend forgiveness, but we, like God, can only forgive the truly And so do you understand what he's trying to say? He's trying to say, so we forgive as God forgives us, which means that Christians extend forgiveness, the offer of forgiveness to all, but actual forgiveness is given to those who are repentant, because we are to forgive in a divine way, when the the, the divine model uh, allowing God, uh, forgiving as God forgave us. So that's how we are not to forgive what is forgiveness. Chris Braun, in this little book, Unpacking Forgiveness, says this. He says, divine forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to Him. Although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. So, forgiveness entails reconciliation. Forgiveness is gracious Forgiveness involves repentance. Forgiveness is a commitment. And then he adds, because I think because a lot of us don't understand this implication, he adds, yet this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. Right? And so lots of people make this mistake of confusing forgiveness with trust. Say a person, say a woman is raped. And she comes and does soul work and she can forgive the rapist. Does that mean that she should be, you know, just in the presence of this person? No, forgiveness does not mean the elimination of consequences. Forgiveness can be given and often is given in a very moment, right? In an instant. Trust is gained through time and often takes a lifetime. I love what Chris Braun, he gives this example. I'll use it as for myself. Say that I robbed a bank as your pastor. Or say that I was pushing drugs out to a bunch of teenagers in our community. And I came before you and, oh, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And you as a church family, you, you, know, like you did the work and you said, Jason, the bank robber, we forgive you. You said, Jason, the bank robber, you know, the, the drug pusher, we also forgive you. And then I might sort of uh, try to get out in front of you a little bit. And I say, oh, great. That means you trust me and I can, and can be your pastor. Thanks for that. And you say, oh, no, no, don't, don't, uh, don't get ahead of yourself. You're done here, buddy. Right? You're done. You see, forgiveness does not mean the elimination of all consequences. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are forgiven in order to forgive. But then Jesus adds this phrase in verse 15. Remember when I was talking about the Lord's Prayer, I said in the middle, there's this bold qualifier Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a bold qualifier. And I said, at the end of the prayer, there, there occurs a bold postscript to the Lord's Prayer. And here it is in verse 14 and 15. Let me read you 15 again. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And you say, what in the world is Jesus really trying to get at here in this bold postscript to the Lord's Prayer? I think he's saying something pretty simple, yet most of us, we don't really want to believe him or take him at his word. He's basically saying something like this. Unforgiving people do not inherit the kingdom of God. If you forgive, if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And you say again, how hard-nosed is Jesus being In this Sermon on the Mount, this is just another case of Jesus being hard-nosed. But I would submit to you that this is actually the ethic of the entire New Testament. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12? He says, to be holy. And then he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In other words, no one will be able to see the Lord in heaven if they have not cultivated holiness in his or her life. Paul says something similar. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, The works of the flesh are plain, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger. And he goes on to say, Those who do such things shall not enter the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, hey, if you don't forgive God is not going to forgive you. This is not, you know, mind-blowing. This is actually the ethic of the entire New Testament. Jesus says something like this. If you do not forgive others as God forgave you. In other words, you came. You confessed. You repented. And God graciously forgives you. And then you go out and fail to do likewise. Then you have never truly understood forgiveness in your life in the very first place and you still stand condemned. In other words, it's not rocket science, right? It's simply the way a believer lives out his or her life of discipleship. In other words, if I believe that it is good and wonderful when someone comes to me humbly, confessing their sins, repenting of their sin, and then I turn my back in staunch unforgiveness then I only show that my own plea for God's forgiveness was nothing more than a mirage. It was a joke and that I was full of hypocrisy when I asked God for forgiveness. You see, this is not works righteousness. This is the way of true disciples of Jesus. So I again ask you this morning, who do you have in your own life That you need to forgive? Is a parent? Is a child? Is a brother or sister? Is a friend? Is a church? Is a pastor? I'm gonna leave you with four applications. When you say, I forgive, what you're also committing to when you say, forgive. I dare say that, you know, in, in this time in our nation, we might have Trump voters, we might have. Biden voters, and I know we have both right here in our own church family, and you might have gotten offended by someone in your family or someone in your circle of friends or someone maybe even in this church that you need to say, I am sorry, or I've been harboring this against you because of your political views or whatever it might be, right? If the world is going to understand and see what forgiveness looks like, where do you think that's going to happen? If not the body of Christ that is forgiven, we should understand more than any other organization on the planet what it means to forgive, what it means to live like Chris Carrier, who himself was a believer that had been forgiven by God first, and so he could forgive David McAllister. When you say, I forgive, these are the four things you're also saying. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident, Number two, I will not bring this incident again and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. In other words, no gossiping. And number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Don't dwell on it. Doesn't mean you can't think about it. There's trauma that you continue to think about, but don't dwell on it to your own demise. Don't use it as leverage. Don't gossip about it. And then be reconciled. I ask you this simple question. When God forgives, does He leave you estranged? Or when God forgives, does He always, as part of that process, reconcile you through the Son, in the Spirit, to God, the Father. Forgiveness entails repentance, which leads to reconciliation. And so, as you are forgiven, what do you do in your life? You open yourself up to receive the God, the gracious grace of our God, the love of God. But as you receive this forgiveness, you also are then charged with a commission. As you are forgiven, so freely forgive. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's you first forgive us. It's just like your love. You first loved us so then we can love others. Lord, when we recognize the great forgiveness, we can then turn to a spouse. Child, friend, colleague, be forgiven and offer forgiveness because we've been changed and transformed by a forgiving God. All God's people said.